for the big storylines results and controversies from the tennis world. Today is Friday, February 2nd. You might have noticed the audio quality is a little bit different on today's podcast. The reason for that fact is that I did something to screw up my red box. And when the red box doesn't work, the headset doesn't connect. When the headset doesn't connect, I unfortunately have to resort to using my computer audio for recording tonight's podcast. Unfortunately, I also don't have super producer Daniel Westoff by my side. He is back in Indianapolis. I am still currently relishing the opportunity to serve as MC of this week's Cleveland Challenger event. Of course, in my capacity as MC, I have a courtside seat for all of the center court action. And we got four thrilling quarterfinal singles battles today in Cleveland. In the end, it was James Duckworth, the top 100 Australian veteran advancing. He will face the rising 24-year-old American Patrick Kipson. That was my first courtside Kipson experience in about two, three years. And I now understand how the 24-year-old was able to capture multiple wild cards last year into main draws of both the French Open. And then obviously late last year, he wins a couple of challengers to secure a wild card into this year's Australian Open main draw. It just makes sense to me now how the 24-year-old has been able to slowly ascend the rankings over the past year and to watch his matchup courtside with the immensely talented 22-year-old American Emilio Nava. That was Unequivocally the best match of the day. Certainly want to spend some time offering my reflections from that one here on today's show. But look, Duckworth versus Kipson is fascinating. Bottom half might be more intriguing, particularly to American tennis fans, as it's the old guard versus the new. 2023 NTA singles champion Ethan Quinn, the ninth highest ranked teenager we have right now on the ATP Tour. He's into his third challenger-level semifinal in his last six events, a three-set victory today over 2017. NCAA singles champion Tyson Kwiatkowski, a thrilling match where, again, you got a glimpse into the things Ethan Quinn does best and why so many people are so excited about his future. Of course, next up for Quinn, he's going to face the man who, dare I say, in the post-Isner, post-Query, post-Jack Sock landscape, he's going to face the man who is probably the elder statesman of American men's tennis right now. Now, maybe that crown belongs to Stevie Johnson, and we can have that conversation, I suppose, at a different time. Who's the eldest sta- or the elder statesman right now in American men's tennis in this post-Isner era, but at a time when it's too early to call Fritz, Paul, or Tiafo, all in their mid-20s, the elder statesman? Dare I say, is 31-year-old Dennis Kudla the elder statesman right now? of American men's tennis. Well, he didn't look the role of elder statesman. He looked the role of top 100 player today. He should have won his match in straight sets over tennis Sandgren. Now, ultimately, Sandgren able to force a third. But again, it was a really thrilling day of tennis, particularly for someone like me who does follow the Americans particularly closely, just given what we do here at Crack Rackets. We cover the college level so intimately. I have the opportunity to cover these challengers. I've had the opportunity to build relationships with a lot of these American players over the years as well. There it is. Second straight episode. Humble brag about things I have the opportunity to do. I apologize for that, but I don't apologize for the fact that I am very intrigued by today's Cleveland results. And I certainly want to share my reflections with all of you listeners today. And then more broadly, I want to talk about a day that was surprisingly on script in the pro tennis world. It was a loaded quarterfinal Friday, and perhaps the best part of the day's action is it sets up a blockbuster Saturday. You look at 
honestly, all three of our tour level events, but Linz and Montpellier in particular to have Ostapenko, Alexandrova, Pavlichenkova, and I'm blanking on who the fourth player is still alive in Linz is, but I know certainly that it's a seed to have each of them remaining. Donna Vekic, the third seed, she's the last one remaining. Excuse me, on the men's side in Montpellier to have Runa and Chorich and, you know, again, Bublik making another semifinal. Felix Ogier Aliassim continuing his run of indoor hardcourt success that we saw at the end of last season. I mean, again, it's our first week of post-Australian Open tennis, and we got a lot of top three seeds remaining in all of our draws. Of course, certainly if you are a Cracked Rackets fan, you'll be excited about Joaquin as well, where Lady Di into another semifinal. Diana Schneider, another impressive victory today, certainly for Ju Lin, defending title points. For her to get to a semifinal, that's a big deal. There are a lot of storylines for us to discuss here on today's show. And again, as always, we want to break down all of the action for all of you tennis fans as we head into another championship weekend, regardless of if it's the best audio quality or not. It's our job here at Crack Records to ensure you remain the most well-informed, best-educated fans in the business. And hopefully, by providing you guys podcasts here each and every day throughout the course of the weekend, you will feel that part. You will feel prepared for all the action as it continues to unfold. That said, before we get to talking about all that action in further depth, a thank you, as always, to all of you who tune in day in, day out. And a thank you, of course, as well to our dear friends at Tennis Point, tennis-point.com. The promo code is CR15 for all of the latest and greatest products in the tennis world. All right, let's get into what was a busy, but again, surprisingly on script quarterfinal Friday in the pro tennis world. Again, where I want to start is the matches I had an up close look at. And in particular, I want to start with two young Americans. I'm going to still count 24 as young. Two young Americans who I think are very clearly on ascending pathways. Two players who I believe tonight or today, whatever time the match happened, displayed top 100 level tennis from start to finish. And of course, I'm alluding to that Emilio Nava, Patrick Kipson match. It was my favorite matchup of the day. It followed a matchup in Kwiatkowski and Quinn with, with all due respect to those two players. That match was so first strike centric. That match had to have fewer than 10, certainly fewer than 20 rallies, go over five, seven, 10 shots. Very rarely were things getting physical. That match was all about imposing your will with your first serve, with your first strike. The Emilio Nava-Patrick Kipson match, the first strike was essential as well. The ball was flying off of both of these players' strings in the best sense possible with pace and depth and accuracy and body weight constantly moving forward. And yet there was a degree of physicality incorporated in that three-set result as well, a degree of variety, a degree of tenacity, a degree of grit that just, it checked off all the boxes. That was a top 100 level match. And to see Patrick Kipson capture it in the fashion that he did, ultimately, for those that didn't get the chance to see it, Patrick Kipson, uh, a three-set win over Emilio Nava. Kipson uh, earning a, uh, excuse me, 4-6, 7-6, 6-4 victory over Nava. I mean, look, that second set was very much on script. In fact, you look throughout the course of the entire match, there were two breaks of serve. Kipson gets broken pretty early in set number one. Nava able to hold the rest of the way. Kipson breaks Nava to start in the deciding set. And that was the last set we uh, break we got in set number three. Two breaks across the board. One break each for each of these players. 
It's not so they didn't have chances, right? Nava, uh, excuse me, Kipson fighting off eight of the nine breakpoints that he faced. Nava fought off two of three. Nava was untouchable on serve through the first two sets. I mean, he wasn't broken. Literally untouchable on serve through those first two sets of tennis was whether it was just the pace of the serve on its own, whether it was the fact that he just seemed to handcuff Kipson so frequently that, yes, well, Kipson did a great job of holding the baseline on his return of serve and trying to neutralize the pace coming at him. Neutral wasn't good enough because neutral gave Emilio Nava time to gear up on the forehand, to drive the backhand line, just the constant depth, the body weight moving forward, the speed of Emilio Nava. I know I took, I uh, tweeted about it. It was in the first set. I forget what the exact scoreline was, but Nava, this display of speed and flexibility to hit this on the stretch, slicing cross-court short angle on a full sprint that even Patrick Kipson afterward, Nava looked at his bench and goes, how did I get that? And Kipson, as a joke, looks right back at him and goes, yeah, dude, how did you get that? And in a joking and very fun manner. I mean, Emilio Nava played excellent and he lost this match and... While I still think the best tennis I've seen this week is from Emilio Nava, the totality of things Patrick Kipson does well. He's tall, 6'3", maybe 6'4". He's strong. He moves pretty well for a guy that size, that strength. He plays with the strength, the pace of a guy that size. He can take the ball early on the rise off both wings. I think technically both ground stroke sides very pure, very aesthetically pleasing, very, not just aesthetically pleasing, but stroke production-wise, that's what you would want, his ability to get outside the ball, his ability to drive the ball flat, his ability to play with topspin, particularly on his forehand wing, his ability to play drop shot, his ability to play slice, his ability to volley comfortably. He had to do everything in this match. And in particular, look, Nava's first serve percentage fell off in set number three. There was a moment where Nava... I mean, he got broken right away. He got frustrated because he, there's a little bit of a controversy, not necessarily with a line call, but Nava didn't exactly love the way in which the call was defended, I suppose, by the sideline umpire when Nava gave it a second look and the umpire just kind of said, no, that was out. And Nava said he like, was a little bit upset that he didn't, he, he was just looking at it. He didn't feel the need for the chair lines person to have to respond. And again, what was so fascinating and why I bring up that is not to embarrass Emilio Nava. Again, I really enjoy Emilio Nava as a human being. I think he is super kind. I think he is super dedicated. I think he is very much intense, very, very passionate. And sometimes that passion can lead to frustration, which I think manifests when manifested by anyone will make you do things you'll regret later on. But that one moment where Nava got a little bit frustrated with the lines person then came a couple of unforced errors, a couple of loose second serves that Kipson was able to capitalize in that opening service game of the third set. It was the one break Kipson needed. And dare I say that was the difference in the match, is even when Kipson was broken in set number one, he never let it frustrate him. He never let the plethora of winners thrown by Emilio Nava at him disrupt what he was trying to do, stick to his game plan, stick to the first serve, stick to pressuring Emilio Nava just not allow Nava to swing freely, in particular on that forehand wing, find that backhand, which he still drives very well, but a little bit stiffer on that wing, I suppose, not quite as dynamic on the backhand side, um, is 
Emilio Nava, and that just speaks to how dynamic he is on the forehand wing. And Nava's a guy I want to talk about more with someone who, a dear friend, and uh, you guys know Alex Banchilla. He's joined this podcast many times over the years. He's going to join me once again, one of the keenest eyes I know in breaking down the technique, breaking down the specifics of what makes Nava such a promising prospect moving forward. I know that's a position he certainly holds, but it was the steadiness of Patrick Kipson, man. That was the standout trait on the day. Patrick Kipson played extraordinary tennis. And, you know, again, you look for Kip, who now over his last 52 weeks of play has made has won his first two challenger titles. He's now made the semifinals or further at eight different challenger events in a 52-week stretch. That's top 150 ball. And as such, Patrick Kipson, he's sitting at 178 in the live rankings. You look at what Kipson was able to do in Australia, right? He was up a set, playing really well against Emil Rusevori in round number one at the U.S. Open last year in his main, uh, not the U.S. Open, excuse me, in the French Open last year as he was able to get that main draw wild card. I thought he played pretty well against Radu Elbot as well, probably a match he should have won. You look for Kipson now, 42 and 22 over his last 52 weeks. It's a 67, per, you know, 66, 67% win percentage. It's the two-thirds rule, folks. And by the way, during that stretch, Holding serve 84% of the time, breaking serve 25% of the time. Now, it's against challenger-level competition, but if you don't adjust for level of competition, those are top 25 club hold break percentage numbers, and that reflects very much with what I see with my eyes. Kipson holds the baseline well, and with his technique being so pure, he's just sound on the return of serve, and he's able to manufacture good pace. Good, like Again, everything he does is good. I don't know what the definitive weakness, the attackable part, of Patrick Kipson's game is because he was pressured in every sort of sense by Emilio Nava. And again, Nava was more dynamic. He was more powerful, could probably do in total more things than Patrick Kipson. He was also more erratic. He definitely provided more on four series. I wish I had the exact stat for you, but in that third set in particular, again, just too many freebies off the racket of Emilio Nava. And again, this match was decided by one loose break of serve by Emilio Nava in that start of the third set, and then a flawless breaker. I mean, Patrick Kipson connected with, I think it was, I think he hit two return winners, just straight up return winners in that second set breaker. That was the highest level match I've seen so far in my time here in Cleveland. Again, a 4-6-7-6-6-4 win for Patrick Kipson, his eighth challenger quarterfinal uh, over the last 52 weeks. Wasn't he was focused today. I should I should clarify. I don't want to say he refused to speak with me today, but he was locked in. He said, can we talk tomorrow instead? Or, you know, again, at a time when I'm not locked in for my match. And I said, of course, Pat, you tell me when you want to chat. We want to have you on the show. So I'd love to catch up with the 24-year-old. Again, this is a guy who was a Kalamazoo champion about a half decade ago, a little more than that. And a highly touted prospect throughout his junior career, a guy who was an All-American in his lone season at Texas A&M, a little bit of a slower burn for him. Again, 24 years old, but sitting at a career high now in the live rankings and just continuing to find more and more success uh, at the challenger level. And again, wasn't rushed in by anything Emilio Nava was throwing at him and Nava was throwing top 100 level tennis at him. So that's the best I've ever seen Patrick Gibson play. Now he's going to take on the Duck, James Duckworth, the top 100 player. Duckworth's been broken exactly once, exactly once through three matches uh, here in Cleveland. Another straight set win for him, three and five over Quinn Vandekastiel. 
Look, Van de Castile's a name you're not going to be familiar with because the 21-year-old senior at Oregon, this is his first challenger quarterfinal. All of his pro successes happened at the ITF level. Now, we've been fortunate to call out of those matches, and certainly I have been following it. But, man, watching the ceiling of Quinn Van de Castile, there were times when he was hitting the serve, hitting the forehand with more depth, with more action, with more chutzpah than even James Duckworth, who has himself a serve-forehand combination, was able to manufacture. Van de Castile just wasn't consistent enough with it yet. And yet... As I've said, the more I watch this sport, the more I realize the thing you can't fake in this sport, the thing that has to be inherent at some point, are the weapons. You just have to be able to control things if you want to have success at the highest levels of the game. And again, he can't really control his own level right now, or he can't control the consistency of it always, excuse me, at least with enough consistency to compete at the highest of high levels. But there are enough flashes from Van de Castile with the athleticism, the weapons he possesses. You're just intrigued. You're just intrigued by what more he can continue to tap into as he continues to rack up more pro experience. But again, that's your top half of the of the draw. Duckworth versus Kips and Duckworth 63.8% favorite according to Tennis Abstract. On the bottom half, we'll go through these a little bit more quickly. I mean, Tennis Kudla should have won this match in straights. He was up 6-4, 4-3. Setting a break on tennis Sandgren. I don't think Sandgren had had more than two break point chances at most to that point of the match. And just Kudla was finding the line easily. It felt like Sandgren really couldn't hit Kudla off the baseline at any point. It was Kudla who was moving forward. Kudla who was taking swinging volleys out of the air. Kudla who was just, again, dictating the terms of engagement. And then he blinked. And then he, he literally, he said it in a post-match interview. I started thinking about the finish line. I started thinking about the victory. And of course, that's when I, my level fell off. That's when I, in his words, choked a little bit. And I think he made two first serves in his service games up 4-3. And then in his service game at, what, 5-6 as well. And you just can't give ten- Tennis Sandgren anything because Sandgren's still extraordinarily fit. Still going to push you to the outer third. Still going to make you uncomfortable. Still going to dip that ball at your feet if you give him enough time on the pass, still going to extend points with two passing shots if you aren't decisive with your volleys. Kudla was. Got an early break in the third. Cruise from there. Again, Dennis Kudla was the better player. He should have been off the court in straight sets. Nice level from Kudla, who's been, dare I say, very much United States-centric for much of the past two years. Like, I know he went to Australia to play United Cup and play Australian Open Qualies, and he Always will play the grass court season, but that's really it. Other than that, he's looking to play these American challengers. And by the way, he wins the Columbus challenger at the end of last year in September. Now he's in the semifinals here in Cleveland. That's eight straight wins in the state of Ohio for Dennis Kudla, the elder statesman, back up to number 173 right now in the live rankings. He was fit. He was focused. I thought he was playing extraordinarily well, serving really well also. So again, credit to Kudla, who... Look, he's going to have a real test. I mean, Ethan Quinn's weapons are as big as anyone's here. Quinn's serve, his ability to generate pace on the forehand, and the thing that's most impressive about the pace Ethan Quinn generates on that forehand wing, some people who are pace generators, obviously you need a bigger bit, a bigger backswing, right? And sometimes those players, more than anything, they need time to get into those big backswings. They need time to be able to dictate. And when they're rushed, again, that's when the shanks start to come. That's when the errors start to come. Certainly, Ethan Quinn can produce some errors on that forehand wing when pressured by pace like anyone can. But the majority of the time, if you go at that forehand wing 
and Quinn doesn't have to move very much, that ball is just coming back. It doesn't matter how hard it comes at Quinn. That ball is coming back at you even harder. And that's the most impressive part is Quinn's ability to get his body weight moving forward, to get every ounce of himself behind every shot. Is he the best lateral mover right now? He's not. If you can get him stretched in the outer third, particularly with action on the ball, he's going to give you a chip or he's going to hit something on the full stretch, not have that opportunity to get his full body weight into the shot. Backhand a little bit flat, a little bit hit or miss at this moment, but I like how he plays the slice. I love, again, how comfortable he is moving forward off of both wings, how comfortable he is as a volleyer already. And remember, Ethan Quinn was really bad to start his college season indoors last year because he wasn't accustomed to the speed because, you know, again, he wasn't accustomed to having to change how he hit the return of serve, less bigger cuts on the forehand wing, more, hey, take it a little bit earlier, but block it back with depth to keep it low. And he said himself, that's been the biggest improvement, my return of serve inside. I'm just a little bit more comfortable with the pace coming at me now. He had to be against a very much informed Ty Kwiatkowski. And I'll continue to say, look, I've known Ty for more than half a decade now. And this one is particularly personal because Ty's my grade in high school and college. Ty was the number one recruit in my recruiting class. And again, his Virginia squad is what kept me so engaged with college tennis through college that I now do what I do today. He just remains the most fascinating player to me because he's so athletic. He's so fluid. He's so skilled. He's so explosive. And yet again, just like you never know what you're going to get. From Ty Kwiatkowski on any given point, some of the second serves he was hitting in this match, just questionable spots, questionable decisions, somehow grinds his way to a 7-5 set. Again, Ethan Quinn served for that match up 7-6-5-4. Somehow Kwiatkowski finds a couple of passes. Quinn gave him a couple of loose forehands as well, but Kwiatkowski fought off a couple of match points in that game, takes the second set 7-5. Now, all of a sudden, they're in war in that third set. And again, credit to Quinn, gets the one break, holds the rest of the way in the third. His serve, his weapons, the real. Uh, credit to Ethan, who's now in his third challenger semifinal in his last six events. All three of those challenger semifinals, by the way, indoors as well. This guy was the ninth highest ranked teenager in the ATP rankings right now. Quinn, 310 in the world. That's a new career high. And for a guy who has no points to defend, between here and May, that he's getting into challenger-level events for sure on his own ranking, if not using the ATP Accelerator program stuff offered by the College to Pros Pathway. He ain't going to need that anymore. He's going to be able to get in on his own. So again, a massive credit uh, to, to Ethan Quinn for just, you know, again, after what was a really rough start to his pro career, he has certainly recovered and now, again, he is on the ascent very, very clearly. So credit to Ethan Quinn. Again, a heck of a showing for him. Three-set win over Kwiatkowski. He'll now take on Dennis Kudla. Kudla, 72.6% favorite. Right now, it's the Duck, 42.2% favorite overall to capture the title. That is everything I saw in Cleveland. And uh, I mean, the Duckworth serve forehand, they're just so overwhelming, even more so than Quinn's. Kipson put together the best all-around performance I've seen thus far. I don't even know if James Duckworth, though, has been pushed to need anything all-around because his service forehand has just been so dominant to date. I think Kipson's going to play with enough depth, enough physicality that Duckworth is going to get, you know, again, there's going to be nothing for Duckworth to pick on on Patrick Kipson the way 
you just had to pick on you just had to stay the course in his earliest matches thus far against the Maloney's, the Van de Castiles, who have some weapons but lack the consistency. <sighs> I'll take Duckworth. Uh, I don't know. Maybe it's a special week for Kipson. I don't know. I'm not going to make predictions because I'm courtside. I think that's going to be a really fun match. I Just in case either listens. I, I think that one's going to be very competitive. I think Dennis versus Quinn is going to be really competitive as well. That's a fun contrast of styles. I will say, just hanging around, palling around with the players, the coaches, everyone likes Ethan. That's very clear, popular amongst his peers already. It's hard not to get along with the 19-year-old who, again, clearly he's here to work. He's here to build a pro career. He doesn't take himself too seriously. He's willing to poke fun at himself. He's willing to laugh, willing to pal around with the guys, even with the matches lingering in the background. Again, I really enjoyed uh, really enjoyed hanging out with all of these guys, but really looking forward to tomorrow's semifinals as well. Duckworth versus Kipson, Kudla versus Quinn. Uh, those are your matchups here in Cleveland. Let's move now, though, to the tour level side of things, and I am going to be a bit more brief with my synopsis of where things stand tomorrow. I'll do a deeper dive on all things tour level, but on the women's side of things, again, very straightforward day of tennis. Four straight set matches over in Lansing. It sets up a blockbuster set of semifinals. You've got our top three seeds all still alive. Top seed Yelena Ostapenko, as expected, bounces back beautifully against Jody Barrage after the three-hour 7-6 in the third win over Tossin in the round of 16. Ostapenko 1-2 over Barrage in their quarterfinal battle. She's now going to take on big-hitting Anastasia Pavlochenko for Pavs into another semifinal. And again, Pavs is back up to 34 in the world. It took her a month to get back up to 34 in the world. She was outside the top 70 at the start of the year. I mean, her ball striking, uh, she just overwhelmed Mertens with all of her pace. And as well as Mertens has played, again, it's Mertens is the litmus test. Are you a top 25 player? You need an elite weapon that you overwhelmingly smurns with because if you don't have that, you're just not going to out-physical her. And again, Paz was just swinging so freely on the return of serve. So power tennis at its finest in that semifinal. Ostapenko taking on Paz. Ostapenko now, what, 10, 11, and 2 overall on the year. Ostapenko in reaching this semifinal back up to number 11 now in the live rankings. Now, even with a title, she's not going to pass Mukhova here this week. But as I continue to allude to, Ostapenko, to me, pretty clearly, one of the eight best players in the world. And for what it's worth, through five weeks of the year, Yelena Ostapenko, fourth in the points race right now. She trails Sabalenka, Chinwen, and Coco Goff. Not the worst spot to be, again, even though we're only five weeks in to this season. Ostapenko, according to Tennis Abstract, a 67.6% favorite. Bottom half of the draw. And by the way, again, she's 5-1 in those six career head-to-head matchups with Pavs. Bottom half of the draw must have semifinal run, as I alluded to at the start of the week, for Donna Vekic, the 27-year-old, finally building a little bit of momentum, some cop and shearns, an 0-6 win over Clara Burrell. She'll now take on Ecat. Katarina Alexandrova, ECAT, 2-6, impressive victory over fellow Russian Anastasia, Pavlich- uh, Anastasia Potapova. Excuse me. Look, Alexandrova, by the way, right now with this semifinal run, she's sitting at 19 in the live rankings. If she were to win a title this week, she would jump back up to her career high of number 16 in the rankings. Vekic right now, 29, the highest she can climb to, 22. That would be three off her career spot, the highest Pavs can get with a win this week up to number 25, so back in the top 25, or honest to God, I do think her level indicates she is playing at really fun set of semifinals there. 
There's a lot of similarities between Vekic and Alexandrova. Again, both low line drive, flatter ground strokes between the two. I just think Ecat's the better mover. So I'll take Ecat in that one. I think Ostapenko's playing the best tennis of her career, so I could absolutely see her getting to another final here in Linz, dare I say, even perhaps even winning another title here in Linz this week. As of right now, Ostapenko the favorite, 45.8%. After that, you have Ekaterina Alexandrova, Vekic Pavlichenkova separated by 0.1% in the tennis abstract projections. But hey, we've reached the semifinal round, and no one is over a 50% favorite. That speaks to, again, how tightly contested the tennis abstract singles forecast projects these Linz semifinals to be in Huahin. Uh, shout out to our girl, Diana Schneider, the 19-year-old, into another semifinal. And I know I listed this yesterday, but since leaving college in May, Diana Schneider now has made four different tour-level semifinals, uh, quarterfinals. She's also made four different tour-level semifinals. She's 4-0 in her first four quarterfinals of her full-time pro career, the 19-year-old, with uh, this result back up in the rankings now to number 95, up 13 spots this week. And again, back inside that top 100, which just makes your life so much easier from a scheduling standpoint throughout the course of a season. And look, I mean, again, it was never really in doubt. The lefty 2-1 and one over Delma Golfi. She fought off all four break points that she faced. She just, Golfi didn't have enough firepower from the jump to press her, uh, pressure Schneider, who's just been swinging so freely this week. She's going to face some pressure tomorrow. She's taking on Wang Xinyu. Big result for the 22-year-old righty into another semifinal. And let's keep in mind how many semifinals now Wang Xinyu has made over the last 52 weeks. You look for her just her second at the tour level, but excuse me, quarterfinals. I said semifinals again, quarterfinals. She started to have some more success. Three quarterfinals, in fact, Cleveland, Osaka, Wahin, all coming in her last four months of results. So not surprising to see the 22-year-old again with this sort of result uh, continue to climb and back up to number 41. She sits right now uh, in the live rankings this week. Strength on strength. I mean, again, I think she used firepower off the serve a little better than Schneider's. I think Schneider's a little bit more fluid, like can just do more things with the heavy top spin as opposed to the line drive tennis that Wang Xinyu likes to play. Schneider likes to throw you some elevated balls over the net. She'll go short angle and really get outside that ball and again, yank you into the outer thirds. She's good, both pretty solid movers given the power tennis they're capable of playing. Wang Xinyu, 66.2% favorites, their first career head to head. I'll stick with Lady Die because why not? And then other semifinal, huge week for Ju Lin. A huge week for Ju Lin as she won this title last year and again has managed to work her way. She's down still 14 spots on the week, but back up, I should say. She had fallen outside the top 70 and now she's back up to number 59 in the live rankings by reaching the semifinals once again here at this event. She gets a straight set win over Arena Rodianova. Of course, for Rodianova, a shout-out to the 34-year-old Aussie. She will make her top 100 debut next week, number 97 in the world. Oldest player in WTA history to be making a top 100 debut. A shout-out to the 34-year-old Aussie, who it was hard not to be moved to tears yourself when you saw her well up with tears uh, in response to, obviously, capturing uh, or, excuse me, accomplishing that feat with her round two victory here in Huajin. So yeah, she falls in the quarters, but Arena Rodianova, you are now a top 100 player. 
Yeah. I mean, again, that's your action in Hua Hin. And right now, according to Tennis Abstract, Wang Xinyu, 35.1% favorite. Julian, 33.1%. Again, no one's over 40%. And we have only four players left. That speaks to Tennis Abstract and all of us see this as anyone's ball game moving forward. That's all of your two-level action on the women's side. On the men's side, I mean, again, Runa, Chorich, Felix, Bublik. Those were your top four seeds in Montpellier. They're all into the semifinals as we look towards championship weekend. And again, only one of them dropped their set. Perhaps least surprisingly, it was Sasha Bublik. Bublik 4-6-6-3-6-4 over Alexander Shevchenko. He's only played three events this year. And that's a small sample size, but it's worth noting. Bublik's made the semifinals in two of his first three events. Now, what was the event sandwiched in between? Well, it was a first-round loss to submit Nagal at the 2024 Australian Open. But what if this is Bublik's year where he, what if at 26 years old, he turns 27 later this year? What if he goes, you know what? How good can I be from start to finish in a season? Can I actually make a top 20, top 15, top 10 push if I want, if that's my goal for any given year? And again, we've just never seen that sort of desire out of Sasha Bublik. I I hesitate to even imagine what it might look like. But what if this is the year we get a consistent effort from Sasha Bublik week in, week out? Again, needed that extra gear in a 4-6-6-3-6-4 victory over Alexander Shevchenko. Bublik through to the semifinals where a date with Felix Ogier on the Asim awaits. And again, for FAA, given how much he struggled with injury and lack of form throughout the early portions of last year, every victory is a victory for him both mentally and in the rankings as well. He's back up to number 28. With this result, straight sets 5-1 and one over Harold Mayotte. I mean, again, indoors, how he imposes his serve, his force, the uh, his serve, his forehand, the weight of shot, the willingness to move forward. I do think there's better depth on his backhand drive now than there once was. I mean, you know what to expect out of Felix. Each, You know what Felix wants to do on every point, but I challenge anyone to try and stop him when he is executing at full speed. That's the bottom half of the draw. Top half, shout out to Borna Chorch. Challenger finalist last week, now semi-finalist here at the tour level this week. Kind of needed it. Chorch up five spots, back up to number 32 now in the rankings with this semifinal. Uh, he'll take on Holger Runa. Runa needed every bit of his physicality, needed every bit of his willingness to move forward, of his backhand pass, of all the things Again, these top two quarterfinals, they were my two favorite tour-level quarterfinals of the day. Two extraordinarily physical matches. Runa, 6-4 and four over Michael Moe. Chorich, 3-4 and four over Flavio Caboli. Again, on paper, these are great matchups. Runa versus Chorich, FAA versus Bublik right now. No one's over a 40% favorite to win the title. Runa, 60.9% over Chorich. FAA, 66.7% over Bublik. But we have four top 40 players. All guys who, by the way, I mean, three of the four, I suppose, in Chorch, Runa, and FAA, they've been top 15 players in the past two years. And so, again, for first week post-Australian Open, I think a lot of people for Runa, I mean, Runa's got so many points to defend this first half of the season, given how good he was last year. But he wants to make a top, another top five push. He wants to be in that same tier one conversation, or dare I say, you know, there was a moment last year where he was pretty clearly the fourth or fifth best player in the world. And he just wants to get back to that mantle. He wants to be in the conversation with certainly, obviously, Djokovic, Alcaraz, Sinner, and Medvedev. 
But he also wants to be in that tier two, right? It shouldn't just be unequivocal. Like Zverev's the one guy who can push those top four. But after that, like, yeah, Rublev might be the best of the rest, but he can't really push those top four. Kasparud has his moments, but he hasn't had the consistency of late. Like Demauer will beat anyone else but those top four. But Holgeruna won. Holgeruna believes, first of all, he's in that top tier. Holgeruna should be in that Zverev tier because we saw him play tier one, tier one and a half, tier two tennis for the first six months of last season. And again, for Runa to get his first outdoor hardcourt final of his career, week one in Brisbane, now a semifinal here in Montpellier. I know sandwiched in between a disappointing round two loss to Arthur Cazot at the Australian Open, but Arthur Cazot has also been one of the breakout stars of the first five weeks. And I do think 50,000 foot view, Holger has started his season precisely how he would have wanted. Just again, yes, the bad Australian Open result, not precisely how he wouldn't have wanted, but outside of Australia, Holger's played consistent ball, I suppose. Three events in, but he's been pretty good to start this season. He's looked the part, dare I say, of top 10, top eight guy. And again, a chance for not a signature victory, but two really good wins, whether it's, you know, the win over Chorich or then the win over an FAA or Bublik winner in the final. That is what the Montpellier draw looks like on the men's side. That's your one tour-level event for the men. But, of course, you've also got Davis Cup action right now. And, look, we'll break that down with more depth next week. I saw my guy, Gab Diallo, former Kentucky All-American. He got a 4-4 win over Kwon Sin Woo. Long-time listeners of this show know I think it's when, not if, the young Canadian's going to make a top 100 breakthrough. U.S. beat Ukraine. Shout out Sebi Korda, three set win. It got a little funky, but he did win. I know uh, Chris Eubanks gets a win in his debut as well. And then Krejcik Rom, three set win to clinch it. That's the only one I followed so far. Like the rest of the rubbers, I'm going to be honest, I just have to catch up on what's unfolded, who's played where. And we will do that for all of you listeners. And I know certainly Davis Cup, something that matters to a lot of tennis fans. And then last but not least, just the other challengers for what it's worth. Shout out to Brandon Nakashima. I believe he's made six straight challenger semifinals or further. That's how you build yourself back up in the rankings. And remember, Nakashima fell outside of the top 120. He's back up to 91 in the live rankings. 22-year-old has reset his course heading into this new year. He's got a very winnable match against Hazim Na, the qualifier in the semis. I believe it's first challengers semifinal. For the qualifier, top half the draw. Top seed Yuri Rodianov, the lefty, taking on Stefano Travagila. Uh, Brandon Nakashima, 70.9% favorite, according to Tennis Abstract. Again, has really done well to go the non-scenic route and, dare I say, build up his ranking the hard way in Bernie. Semifinal shout-out Omar Jessica capitalizes on his win in the round of 16 over top seed Rinki Hajikata with a win over fifth seed in Dane Sweeney. Jessica into the semifinals now uh, where he will face off against Shintaro Imai, of course, Yasutaka Uchiyama, currently the favorite to capture the title. He'll take on Ozzy Alex Bolt in the other semifinal. Then in Pirakisaba, hopefully I pronounced that correctly. Leave it all in. We have to. Um, looks like we're going to have a battle between the top two uh, seeds, as again, the men who have been favored from the start, Federico Coria, Camilo Ugo Carabelli, they both remain alive. I think between the two of them, they've dropped a combined one set so far this week. So shout out to Felix Gill. Shout out to Matthias Puccinelli de Almeida. But I think we're headed to Coria versus Carabelli, an all-Argentinian final there. That said, that's your look 
and everything that unfolded on what was a busy, but dare I say surprisingly on script. You heard it. Top four seeds all still alive in Montpellier. Top three seeds still alive in Linz. Top two seeds alive at just about every challenger we've got. Nothing too shocking on the Davis Cup front either. Was a stay on script. Quarterfinal Friday nevertheless sets up a blockbuster semifinal Saturday. And of course, we will be back to break down all that action for all of you tennis fans tomorrow. Of course, as always, a shout out to our super producer, Daniel Westoff, for the of it editing job he does day in, day out, makes all of our content possible. And by the way, tomorrow, Crack Rackets YouTube channel, make sure you check out College Match Day. Mark Bay on the call, Florida versus Florida State, men and women, you're not going to want to miss it. Shout out, of course, to Westoff, uh, who will be producing with Coach Bay as well. Said, I can't be on that broadcast, but obviously I'll be here reporting from Cleveland. So with all that said, can Going to go hit the Z's, get ready for another exciting day here on the job for our fantastic super producer, Daniel Westhoff, our friends at Tennis Point from all of us here at both Crack Rackets and the Tennis Channel Podcast Network. I'm your host, Alex Gruskin. Will I try to record less choppy outros moving forward? Absolutely. Will I hope to have my microphone back tomorrow as well? You betcha. But in the meantime, you know what we said. That's the break. I'll talk to you all later. Thanks, everyone.